I want to destigmatize the word power because the the reality is that power is what you make of it. And having the power to make the world a better place in whatever way your nonprofit or association is trying to do should be celebrated. To open up 2024, I'm re-releasing a fan favorite from 2023. This episode with Lisa Hazarian was one of the my most downloaded episodes in 2023. Lisa and I explore some of the misconceptions that nonprofits have about advocacy, as well as how you can make it easier for your volunteers to get involved by building a step-by-step path for them to get engaged. Let's listen. My guest today on Mission Impact is Lisa Hazurgeon. Mission Impact is the podcast for progressive nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without becoming a martyr to the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your podcast host and nonprofit strategic planning consultant. On this podcast, we explore how to make your organization more effective and innovative. We dig into how to build organizational cultures where your work in the world is aligned with how you work together as staff, board members, and volunteers. And all of this for the purpose of creating greater mission impact. Lisa and I talked about public policy and advocacy for nonprofits. We explore how anger and sadness can be a catalyst for action, how nonprofits, especially C3s in the US, can incorporate advocacy into their work and further their mission, and why it's so important to think about why your issue could matter to the decision maker from their point of view and some simple steps you can take to start building a relationship with policymakers, as well as how to identify and build a ladder of engagement for your supporters. Welcome, Lisa. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Carol. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here today. So I like to start out with a question around what drew you to the work that you do? What would you say motivates you and what would you describe as your why? Yeah, so a lot of answers to that question, but they they really all come back to two things. One of which is really at at a few key points in my life, needing to find an outlet for a lot of sadness and anger during times of loss. And the other being my my training as a historian. I did a, a career change. I have a PhD in modern US history and I studied social movements and public policy and how they influence one another. And the the moment when all of that came together, uh, 2008, the, the moment really lasted about six months, starting with a tenure track job offer, which was great, except that the university where I was offered a job, this is back before marriage equality, and <clears throat> I would be moving with my partner, now my wife, And the university didn't offer domestic partner benefits, and that could have been a big issue. And so I asked if they might be able to come up with some kind of way for my wife to get onto the university's health insurance policy. I pointed to a couple of examples of other universities that had made these kinds of accommodations. And long story short, the response I got a few days, well, the immediate response I got was being yelled at, which was not good. 
but the ultimate response was being told the university is no, no longer considering your candidacy for this position. And I, that was very upsetting, <laughs> as you can imagine. And this was 2008. And I suddenly had a lot of time on my hands because the contract I had had just ended. And I didn't know what I was going to be doing. But uh, I was approached and asked to um, pull volunteers together for the Obama campaign to have a presence at the Cleveland Pride Parade and Festival. And I did that. And I did that specifically because Barack Obama was a candidate who, although he did not at the time support marriage equality yet, he did support an Employment Non-Discrimination Act that would that we still don't have, I'm still trying to get what's now the Equality Act passed. But for me, this was a way not just to get something for myself, but to get something for everyone, to fight to have a president who who would sign a much needed non-discrimination act. And that became the thing that I put all of my emotions into for the next several months and really saw a lot of the things I had studied coming into action in terms of what it means to, to marshal your leadership skills in a way that draws in hundreds of people to build the collective power you need to achieve a goal, which in this case was getting Ohio for, for the campaign. And I, I, after the campaign, took some time to take stock and realized that um, I should build myself a, an off-ramp from acad academia and an on-ramp into professional advocacy work. I feel like that's a that's an off-ramp that a lot of people are exploring these days. <laughs> but that's a different conversation. That is a, um, that is a different conversation. Yeah, and I can recommend yeah. someone to talk to you about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, 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 I appreciate that story. And yeah, I do think that a lot of advocacy work does start with something, you know, you're angry about or something that pisses you off or sadness or any of those things that can be a catalyst to, okay, well, I can sit in this or I can try to move things forward. And as you said, have things be different for me, but have things be different for a wider group of people, which is, which is so important. Absolutely. My exit from history, I was a history major back in college, was much less dramatic than yours. I was doing my thesis for my BA and at the library, the, the big library downtown in Philadelphia and reading magazines from the late 1800s. I was looking at the role of Advice being given to women on parenting in that time period in Germany. And I found that I was allergic to old paper. <laughs> so a life of being in our sure. <laughs> was not going to be in my future. So not quite the same, but uh, yeah, got that, that uh, commonality, that background. So <laughs> As you said, you, you've shifted into doing political ag advocacy work and, and helping people with their political campaigns, you know, with, with nonprofit organizations. And I think there are a lot of misconceptions that people have about 
you know, what's allowed, what isn't allowed. What would you say are some of those, some of the biggest misconceptions that you run into in terms of advocacy work and organization, nonprofit organizations that you work with? Yeah, so it, it, it's interesting. I mean, I think uh, plenty of people before me have said that, you know, one of the biggest misconceptions out there is, you know, this idea that nonprofits can't do policy advocacy. And that's just absolutely not the case. Of course they can. And and I would argue they should, right? Nonprofits have a lot more knowledge and experience in a whole range of fields that are areas where public policy is made than most of the people who are making those decisions. And when nonprofits bring their voices and bring the voices of the people they serve into those conversations uh, to try to advance policies, they're really doing a service to everyone because it's not like lawmakers can be experts on everything. None of us can. And, you know, I'm, I am not an attorney. And if I were, I would have a disclaimer that I'm not giving legal advice. But, but the short of it is that as long as you aren't endorsing a particular political candidate doing anything to try to affect the, to try to elect person X over person Y, it's very likely that you're perfectly legally compliant and it's nearly impossible for most organizations, even full-time advocacy organizations, to run up against the, the IRS limits on how much time and Monday money you can spend on advocacy. But that that misconception aside, because that's you know one that comes up over and over, I actually think another really really major misconception is that progressive nonprofits can't get anything done unless Democrats are in power. Or the flip side of that, that having Democrats in power means that progressive nonprofits can get things done. Neither one of those is completely true. And and both of them miss the reality that um, there are a lot of things competing for attention at legislatures. And at the end of the day, it's anyone's ability to influence those decision makers that matters. And and there are a few things that nonprofits can do that can really help with that. And one of them is simply having supporters who are constituents of those key lawmakers. And the other is speaking their language. So when I was executive director of the North Carolina AIDS Action Network, I, I did not harbor any illusion that many of the Republican lawmakers in control at the North Carolina General Assembly were going to be moved by a lot of the things that motivated me. The fact that I had lots of gay male friends living with HIV, for example. Um, um, I did think that they would probably be moved by the idea that it would be great if our kids could grow up in a world where, you know, once they are adults, they're not worried about HIV. And that in the meantime, it'd be great if the state wasn't spending as much money dealing with HIV. And having those messages that resonated with the lawmakers really, really made a big difference. 
Yeah, well, a couple couple things. Obviously, our conversation is all grounded in the context of the United States. I do have folks who who listen to the podcast from around the world. So for this kind of topic, it's all uh, within the particular laws and institutions that we have here. You mentioned the IRS, the God, I can't, Internal Revenue Service, that's what it's called. And uh, I think the limits that you were talking about also are particular to one type of nonprofit, which is, I, I, I don't know the percentages, but I'm guessing the most common, uh, the C3 uh, within that code. Um, and then, of course, our our democ- our politics in terms of our majorly two party system and all of that. But with with all of that in, in mind, uh, I think what you're saying, though, taking all of those particularities of the U.S. aside, the what you're talking about of really thinking about what matters to the decision makers that you're trying to speak to and share your message, share your, you know, trying to move things forward, getting in their shoes, thinking about how they're looking at things, where there might be common ground. I mean, that's something that folks could do anywhere. Absolutely. No, that's, that's exactly right. And, you know, I have some colleagues in Canada who, and who I've talked with about, about similar things, you know, different particulars about how government is structured, what parties might be called, et cetera, but same basic principles. And I would add that, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these tips for doing better public policy advocacy also apply to just any kind of mission advocacy, including fundraising. You know, I I think many of us have had the experience of sitting down and trying to figure out how to translate how we talk about our work and our mission in the day-to-day into the language of whatever major funder we might be applying for funding from and just, you know, speaking their language is half the battle there. Yeah. What matters to them? And, and how do you, I mean, so that, that, what are some of the, you know, specific or concrete steps that people can take to start a, to start, being able to kind of shift their perspective and get a better understanding of, of the folks that they're trying to influence. Yeah. So, I mean, always sort of trying to ground ourselves in who's our audience, who is it who, whose help we really need? Because if it was just us, <laughs> right, if, if it was just our staff, our board, uh, the people we serve, the people on our email list, then we could just mobilize everyone and do it. But when we need to persuade people who are on on the outside of that us, then we really need to think about who are these people. And, you know, these days it's not that hard. Everyone's got a website. It's, um, you know, you can start doing things. I think one step that is really useful is to to do like a really quick survey of the people who receive your email and you know your your email blasts and simply ask like hey do you know any of our policymakers at the local level county state or whatever the the kinds of uh, divisions of government might be in other countries because there's a, a good chance that there are people who are receiving your emails who do have relationships 
And that's important in two ways. The first being they're really going to know and understand those people a lot better. And second, many times the best messenger is somebody who already has a good relationship um, with that lawmaker. So, you know, that's that's just a one one really simple thing that people can do. Yeah, and all those steps that you take to kind of build build that relationship, start to get to know the person. And I was listening to another podcast last week, and this was more in terms of kind of, you know, business networking. And but the person had a had kind of a, a principle of no ask before one year of of being in relationship with that person. So not like, okay, I'm going to knock on your door and I'm going to ask you immediately for something that that and and she used the word political capital, although it wasn't, you know, high, you know, lar- large P. And I don't know what you think about that or, you know, that's just that's just one kind of framework for for thinking about it. But what I did appreciate about it was that you need to invest something in that relationship before you're asking something of the person. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I would not wait a year. <laughs> I not wait a month. <laughs> okay. If you need something, you ask, but I, but I definitely concur that it is always better to start building a relationship before you need something. And I, I recently, well, uh, a, a little while back, wrote a blog piece that the North Carolina Center for Nonprofits um, put out. It actually came out shortly after the November election here in the U.S. And it was, you know, simply a sort of, you know, why and how to congratulate the people who just won. And, you know, basically saying, like, this is a great opportunity just to get on their radar, tell them a sentence about what you do, what you care about, make sure you're going to get their emails. And it's just, it's going from being a complete stranger to having that initial point of contact, which can be really important later on where, when something comes up and you, and you really need to have a more substantive conversation. Yeah. So I think some other things I, I, I really appreciated that post of yours and cause it's so simple, right? And and anybody can any can anybody can do that, but not everybody's going to, which sure. will be the differentiating thing. And then other simple things of you know cele- helping celebrating wins and thanking someone for for lots of different things, just all those little bits and pieces that you can do to start cultivating that relationship. That's exactly right. Yeah. What would you say are some of the big mistakes that people make? <clears throat> Well, one of the biggest mistakes I've made and have really learned from is limiting, trying to do everything ourselves and limiting opportunities for other people to get involved. You know, the the reality, I, I love that part of your tagline is, you know, that, that this podcast is for, you know, progressive nonprofits and associations, organizations who you know, want to achieve big things without being martyrs to the cause. And I have definitely been in positions where I have um, worked myself to the brink of like needing to be admitted to the hospital for rehydration and rest. And that is not healthy and it is not sustainable, but it's not necessary either. The, the reality is that 
whatever it is that we're doing, whatever our mission is, whatever our immediate goals are, there are other people out there who want us to be successful. And there are a lot of people out there who want to help. And we just need to ask. And the, the reality is that when we give people strategic opportunities to help out at whatever level of engagement works for them, whether it's, uh, you know, let me take three minutes and do something, or let me take three hours and do something once a week, or let me take three hours one time in my life, <laughs> um, whatever it is, that that gives us so much more capacity to get things done. And so, you know, I, I think one of the most important things that any organization can do is think about the best ways to engage their supporters more frequently in more meaningful ways. Yeah, and I appreciate what you're saying around it's not necessary, but I would also say, you know, especially in, in this kind of work, and probably any kind of work, the more people you have involved, the more effective you're going to be anyway. But I see a lot of times like organizations that, you know, let's say they're an environmental organization and they do environmental education and, you know, they kind of have this assumption that, so we bring these kids out, they're doing environmental education, they're going to talk to their parents and their parents are going to become advocates for the environment. And it's like, there's so many leaps between the one to the other that, yeah, maybe one or two of the folks, you know, will have that ultimate outcome. But if, you know, there are so many like little breadcrumbs that you could, you could, or, or uh, steps that you could offer people, but I find it's hard pe for people to kind of think of what those little steps are. Sure. And I, I, so yes. And, okay. <laughs> um, I, I think that there are another mistake I see a lot are organizations who, um, organizations that have a ton of ideas, let's do this thing and let's do this thing. And here's another thing we can do. And here's another thing that we can do. And all of, and some of those ideas can be, you know, fabulously creative and innovative and, um, you know, do a good job of leveraging their strengths, but they aren't necessarily attached to a core strategy to achieve a particular campaign milestone, a particular goal, nor are they attached to a more overarching organizational goal of building long-term power. And, you know, I, I want to destigmatize the word power because the, the reality is that power is what you make of it. And having the power to make the world a better place in whatever way your nonprofit or association is trying to do should be celebrated. And uh, one thing that I help organizations do is take a step back. And this is a place where my training as a historian really helps, even though you stopped in those archives. And working <laughs> yeah, you can understand that as a historian, you develop 
this perspective that is simultaneously very long range and has a ton of attention to details of how change happens over time. Like that is very much what, what historians do. And it's what successful advocacy organizations do if they're doing a great job of developing strategy is they think ahead a few years down the road to the kind of impact they want to have and they kind of backfill and think about okay well we can't we don't have the resources we need right now we don't have the capacity we need right now to achieve this big thing that we want to achieve by 2025 let's say um, but we can get there. Let's think about the steps to take to get there. And it could mean just growing the number of people who, who are part of your organization, who you're in dialogue with, who you can mobilize in support of a goal. It can mean building out, cultivating a group of people who can talk to the media and be effective storytellers on behalf of your organization. It can be people who can bring some specialized skills that you need. You brought up, you know, an environmental piece. It could be that, you know, you need the capacity to just get water samples from across the entire state. And it turns out that that's something where you can teach everyday people to go out and help be water monitors. I have very little expertise in this. I'm just <laughs> using this as an example. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah. So can you give me the example of, I, 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 I was thinking about what you were saying, and I think, you know, one of the things that the nonprofit sector does not struggle with is a deficit of ideas. <laughs> and a deficit of things that they could do or, you know, ways that they, they could try to move their um, issue forward. But can you give me an example of when folks have, you know, kind of taken those ideas, but really built a strategy to move, move their issue forward and how they've engaged people? Yeah, well, I, I'm going to give you an example that I know well, which, again, is drawing from... Um, my own work with the North Carolina AIDS Action Network. When I was hired, I was the the first uh, the the first full time staff person, the, the first executive director, staff of one. And the first thing I did was ask, like, who who are we? Who are all the people who have ever been involved in this formerly all volunteer thing? And it was a list of 243 people who I either was able to find a, an email or a phone number for. And I started building. And I, I started building for a very particular need that we were aware might be coming down the pike, a program that at the time was called the AIDS Drug Assistance Program had there have been funding crises in many of the states in the US, including North Carolina, that resulted in waiting lists. And, and we were anticipating a state budget battle that I needed to prepare for. And I knew 
that um, that no matter how great a one pager I developed and no matter how much of a collegial relationship I was able to form with the heads of the Health and Human Services Appropriations Subcommittees, that at the end of the day, I was going to need more to convince them. And, and so I started tapping the people who we already had as folks who had ever done something and using them as my starting point to recruiting more people across the state, just needing numbers um, and also needing breadth of coverage, particularly in the districts of the legislators who sat on that super important Health and Human Services Appropriations Subcommittee. So I was very intentional about going to those particular corners of the state and finding constituents of those specific people so that when the moment came around that I kept on chasing after Nelson Dollar trying to talk to him and he kept on not talking to me <laughs> and I kept on trying to schedule an appointment, we had a, a list, a deep list of people who lived in his district and we mobilized them to make phone calls into his office and you know, gave them a little bit of training about what to say on the phone. And I gave it a couple of days and then I went back to the office to make an appointment. And the legislative aide said, oh yeah, we've been getting a lot of calls about that issue. Let me fit you into his schedule. And you know, I, I mention this because uh, a, a lot of us who you know got a lot of education might have some letters after our name are are under the illusion that all we have to do is is develop a compelling argument, um, but actually we need to actually force people to listen to our argument. And you know, I I, I like to say that there's there can't be persuasion without the pressure to actually listen to you. And so that's a, a case of doing that base building, that intentional base building to create the pressure for a key legislator to listen. And that base building, I mean, I'm, I'm on a lot of newsletter lists and, and, you know, get advocacy alerts and some I respond to and some I don't. And I, I don't consider myself, you know, someone who's really that, that that's, you know, I, I, I would say probably I'm a reluctant advocate. And so even something like that, I feel like, you know, it takes some steps to get people comfortable to pick up the phone, send an emails, you know, do any of those things to, to contact decision makers. And one of the things that we talked about beforehand that, that I think is relevant in a lot of different circumstances is this notion of kind of a letter, a ladder of engagement. And you talked about before kind of, you know, something someone can do in three minutes, or maybe it's three hours in a week, or maybe it's three hours one time. Can you talk a little bit about more about that and, and kind of, you know, cultivate your base that's a that that there's a lot of things that could go into that right to actually have it be successful sure yeah no I, I would love to talk about that and 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 I will say that when I was with with NCAN with the AIDS Action Network just about every board meeting my staff and I 
would tell a story that explained the roles of, you know, in the end, it was me and a community organizer and a communications person. And we would tell a story that demonstrated what each of us did in the organization. Um, but it also talked about our ladder of engagement. And the story would go something like this. You know, it would it would go something like, um, our community organizer went to this event in the community and met a bunch of people and had conversations with them and moved some of those people from being members of the general public to being people who we had the ability to get in touch with by getting their contact information, getting them signed up to receive our emails. And at the same time, he invited them to become part of our volunteer team, where we would ask people if they would make a commitment to um, devote three hours one time in the next three months to helping us out. And so we wanted to give people a sense of, we're not asking for your whole lives, but we also don't want to bother trying to get you out to things if you're not thinking that, yeah, sometime in the next three months, I want to do this. And that was the beginning of us explaining our ladder of engagement. The first rung is simply putting your foot on that bottom rung and saying, yeah, let me get on your email list. Let me get on your, you know, your text list. Um, here's how to hear from me. But maybe you might grab on higher on that ladder and say, you know what, I, I have this intention of becoming a volunteer um, and stating that. Um, and then we would move people um, and, you know, I would say the next real step, uh, our communications person would move people from being signed up to getting people to take that first click action the getting people to respond to an action alert, getting people to share something on Facebook. And, and we, we really developed a few different ladders of engagement. And one of them was more of a base building lane of volunteering with us at community events to do the same thing our community organizer had done, go around with clipboards, petition postcards, et cetera, bring more people involved. And another piece was, was more storytelling oriented, get people involved in telling their stories about why our work mattered to them and why the policies we advocated for were important in their lives. But the, the basic concept is to have a predefined set of steps that that people can take from not being anywhere on the ladder to climbing up that ladder to positions of increasing responsibility and importance to the success of what you do. I personally am okay with letting people skip a few steps. Sure. But not be all the way at the top. Because having those steps is important for, for getting some proof of concept that somebody is going to be reliable and be effective at particular things. 
And there's also a certain amount of skill building that one wants to do. If you have someone who's volunteering as a phone banker, you want them to be really good at it before they host their own phone bank and need sure. to support other people who are doing it for the first time. Well, I love the specificity of, of that. You know, the email one, I think, you know, our contact information, I think a lot of people are probably already doing, building their list, building, you know, how they get in touch with people. But that next step of the the way that you talked about, you know, three hours in the next three months, it's memorable for one. And and it's it's possible to, it's, it's I mean, it's a commitment, right? It's not nothing. It's not... I'm just going to ask you to do this little thing that doesn't really matter to you. It's 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 more than it's something you need to advocate actively say yes to, and yet it's not so huge that it become you know you kind of get paralyzed by oh my god they're asking me to do something and I'm not ready. And I and I love the idea of also that you know through that one you're seeing who does step up, and then two you're having a chance to kind of build their skills as they as you as you go. And then also, you know, seeing, do they follow through? Do they say what they're going to do? You know, and I think that's applicable in so many different parts of the work that nonprofits do of, you know, someone may be trying to build their board. And I often talk to groups about, okay, so get them involved in some other way, a committee, campaign, you know, some specific things that you can see how they are to work with, uh, do they follow through? Do you have to chase after them? You know, what's, what's their work style? Does it fit? Is it contributing? Is it draining? Before you ask them for something really big that could have just a huge impact on your organization. Oh my gosh. Well, that is excellent advice you're offering, Carol. <laughs> <laughs> but there's there's another piece that I want to put out there. So, and, and really just talking with you, you know, I remember, um, the the community organizer who was on staff when I ultimately left NCAN, he reminded me one day that the first time he met me, he was an undergraduate at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and I was a guest speaker in a class he was taking. And that was his first awareness of me and what I was doing. And he waited tables at a local diner and you know i bumped into him there and then he showed up as a volunteer and was someone who i saw had some real natural abilities in this area and got him involved more and then he you know he had a job where we were coalition partners and you know i just uh, finally, I was able to hire him <laughs> at, at, at one point. But so he went all the way from being a member of the general public in a classroom and getting involved as a volunteer and then being a volunteer leader to ultimately being staff. And I, I, one thing that I'm really proud of to this day about the program that we built, what our supporter engagement program looked like, is the number of people who were involved as volunteers or interns who now work in the field. It's actually a really great way to um, to build the the profession. A really great way to help people build their leadership skills. Absolutely. And I, I helped an association build 
you know, their letter of engagement, and this wasn't from a policy point of view, but from a, a volunteer leadership point of view. And it was just, you know, okay, you have the first step is to become a member, maybe, or maybe even the first step is to come to an event that the association holds or or even, you know, well, I guess the first step before that would be it be in the field <laughs> and, you know, be, become aware of the organization, come to an event, and then, you know, start to use the resources of an organization, step up to volunteer to be a presenter or write something for, and it could be at the local level or, or regional level. And it's just like one small step, as you say, after another of taking increasing responsibility. And then in that case, for that person building their visibility over the course of their career and their leadership skills. But I think it's also one of the things that we tried to as we were kind of mapping that volunteer leader experience, also thinking at each step, what what is the person, you know, not only what they're contributing, but what they're gaining through that experience of the, the and, and being explicit about the skills that they're able to learn as they go and how, how you know, what they're doing ultimately is contributing to that bigger picture. Yeah, well, that that piece is huge. And one thing that's always been important to me whenever I do any kind of training, well, first of all, I always believe in if you have volunteers, you need to actually spend some time training them before you just throw them into whatever they're doing. But yes, please. (laughs) For me, the the training should always have a why as well as a how Mm. and and have the big picture of, you know, we are doing this because here's how this little thing that we're going to be doing fits into the bigger picture. And then, you know, with, with the how, I like to have, you know, let me explain it. Let me demonstrate it. Let's have you role play it. Let's evaluate. Okay, now you're ready. And I think that that is super important to the, the quality of volunteer experience that people have as well as being important to to helping to really build those skills. You know, to me, one sign of a great volunteer program is an intention uh, of having this ladder of engagement where a volunteer who's come three times has an opportunity to say, yes, I would like to take on the next level of responsibility where I can be the person who trains and coaches new volunteers doing the same thing. And that expands the organizational capacity so much. And, you know, these are still folks who might just be giving, you know, three hours a month. But if you have 10 people doing that, that's a huge amount of capacity that you're adding. So yeah, when you ask people into those things, it really creates, yeah, you're, you're, you're creating more and more ripples that they, that they can contribute to. And I, the other thing that you were talking about the why and the how I, I work with groups doing, helping them with their strategic planning and, and it's a, it's a process, right? There are lots of steps to it. And one of the things that I've realized recently is that I, it's so obvious to me what the why is that I forget to, to tell people the why of all of these steps that we're taking through the process. And so I had an instance recently where there was a, there was just a real, 
misalignment of expectations because I hadn't done a good job of explaining that why. And I think for any of us who do the thing that they do, you know, you get to be very familiar with it and it all seems just, you know, as obvious as I don't know what, anything. And and so it's easy to forget. So I, I appreciate that reminder. Of course. And you know what, even though I said it, as I just listened to you, I realized that what you're saying applies to a situation I am in right now. So I <laughs> yeah, well, I think I'm going to make it my mantra for 2023, <laughs> the why and the how, not just the how. Well, great. Great. It is a good, it is a good mantra. I just need to apply it to all aspects of my life, not just yeah. that particular one. <laughs> right, right. And I, I, what I also appreciate about what you're talking about, we started talking about, you know, decision makers that you're trying to influence and kind of looking for how, where the commonality is. But I think it's really with your base it's also looking for, you know, what, you know, what's going to influence them to take action, those, those smaller steps that you're asking people to take. Um, and some people, you know, they may be really, motiv- and I, I was thinking also, I was focusing in on skills, but some people may be very motivated by that. Other people, it may be other things of, you know, being part of a community that, that's, yes. that's, that's uh, taking action, um, you know, seeing those and and I think it's it's hard to go to wins because I don't know, policy campaigns there's often it's it's often a very long process before you really get the big, you know, the big uh, triumph. So uh, finding those small wins as you go to keep people moving and motivated. But thinking about like the different things that that will engage people and motivate people at the same time of being strategic of not trying to do all the things for all the people. Yeah, no, I mean, that that's right. And, and listen, you're very much in touch with the reality that that policy change can be glacial, except when we don't want it to be. Right. right? <laughs> like, <laughs> have this bullet train of bad policy coming right at us. <laughs> Although the people on the other side will probably think, well, actually, we've been building towards that for the last 50 years. <laughs> no, and, and, and you're exactly right. You're 100% right about that. But, you know, I think that the way I and other people who have volunteered have experienced these policy campaigns, part of the win, again, is just the opportunity to, I, I think that for a lot of people, the, the win is simply being able to do something with other people to help move closer to that eventual win. And because the isolation and the frustration of being by yourself, being frustrated by something and just feeling helpless, that's terrible. I hate it. (laughs) Other people hate it. And so for me, I'm like, look, let's just, let's, create ways to bring folks together. And I'm I'm thinking about back, I think it might have been 2016, um, when the North Carolina legislature passed HB2, which got national press. It was, you know, one of these anti-trans bills. And I was pissed. Lots of people were pissed. And 
you know, I decided, all right, I got to do something. What can I do? What's, what's going to be helpful? And I decided just to take some skills that I had learned in, in other campaigns to do some grassroots fundraising to try to unseat some of the co-sponsors of that odious bill. And so I just put together, you know, this little, you know, grassroots fundraising thing where I invited people to join me. I had a friend who was able to get like the community room in her neighborhood for us. I did a little training. We made phone calls just to our own personal contacts and we raised about $5,000 one evening for some of these candidates to help get them elected. And, you know, in, in the grand scheme of a campaign for state house or state senate, that's not a ton of money, but it's also a significant amount of money. And, you know, we all felt like we helped with getting a few good people elected, but also it just meant that we could all be in a shared space and, and do something ourselves. And everyone we called to help make a donation was also someone who we knew was feeling like, oh, this HB2 thing stinks. I want to do something, but I don't know what to do. So it had those multiple layers or ripples, as you said, that really, you know, I knew that, well, yeah, I can donate money, but I, I have only, you know, I work in the nonprofit sector. How much money could I possibly donate? <laughs> <laughs> but I know people and they can donate and they know people and they can right. donate. And again, so, that, that, yeah, yeah, pulling people in, as you talked about, you don't have to do it all yourself. Absolutely. And that actually part of the joy is doing it together. Yeah. and bringing people yeah. together and creating that, that sense of community. Yeah, so really appreciate that. We'll be back after this quick break. Mission Impact is sponsored by Grace Social Sector Consulting. Grace Social Sector Consulting helps nonprofits and associations become more strategic and innovative for greater mission impact. Download free resources on strategic planning, program portfolio review, design thinking, and more at gracesocialsector.com resources. We're back on Mission Impact. So I'd like to end each episode with playing a, a game where I ask you an icebreaker question from my little box of icebreaker questions. So we were talking about skills before. What's a skill that you learned when you were young that you would say that you still use today? I'm such a different adult than the kid I was. But there's a really obvious answer. Right. So the skill that okay. I first used when I was in the fifth grade was simply the skill of um, not accepting that something has to be the way someone says it has to be. And I'm, I'm thinking of a kid, mm -hmm. a boy, this is important to the story, a boy from my neighborhood who is in my grade at school deciding that girls couldn't play in the fifth grade softball game. And when pressed by me for a reason why, coming up with this excuse that you had to have a glove, me saying, well, why can't we just borrow gloves from people who are at bat? And him saying, you have to have your own glove. And so goody two shoes me cut recess. <laughs> 
<laughs> to go home and get my own baseball glove, which I did. But then when I walked out of the door, instead of making a right to go back to school, I made a left to go to our neighbor's house and knock on the door and asked to borrow their kids' gloves and went down the street and did it again. I walked back to school with my arms full of baseball gloves. And so, you know, at those, those skills of not accepting injustice in the world, um, doing something so that I get justice for myself, but also taking the step of making sure that other people have justice too. I love that story. That's perfect. I mean, here you were in fifth grade, you know, yep, taking, taking, standing up for something you believed in and then yeah, doing a neighborhood canvas to <laughs> collect resources for your cause. I love it. That's great. That's great. So what are you excited about? What's, what's coming up next for you? Yeah, in your work? So what's I'm emerging super in the work excited. I, I have decided that 2023 should be my year of, being part of more teams. And I'm excited about a couple of ways in which I see that happening. One is already happening, which is that I'm going to be leading a team of nonprofit professionals from various parts of North Carolina, where I'm based, and leading them through a three-month a three-month workshop advocacy academy that we're calling it to help them develop advocacy campaigns that also help them build long-term power. So that's super exciting to me. And then I'm, I'm really trying to vision into existence a, a few more partnerships with organizations and really on the lookout for organizations that are ready to move beyond that, oh, we've got an idea, we've got an idea, and instead get into the mode of saying, okay, let's put a pin in this and think about what our desired outcomes are, what we need to get there, actually put together a campaign strategy, take steps, learn the skills we need. And I'm, I am open to doing trainings and strategic planning and that stuff that I've been doing for years. But I, I've recognized that the work that is most fulfilling to me is when I can have a more sustained engagement with an organization and really be embedded in that team for like at least three months to really work alongside folks and ask the questions that prod people and make observations and congratulate people on their great ideas and help make things successful. So I'm, I'm excited about um, looking for and embracing that kind of work. All right. Well, thank you so much, hey, Lisa. It was, it was great awesome, having Carol. you on thank the podcast. You so much as well. I appreciated how Lisa described intentionally building a ladder of engagement, recognizing that there are a lot of people who want to help and want to get involved, but may not know how. How to shift someone from an email on your mailing list to someone who more actively shows up for your organization. And I really appreciated the specificity of her ask. Are you willing to do something in the next three months? And then provide a menu of options something that might take three minutes, something that might take three hours. 
And by building a pathway of slowly increasing the involvement and responsibility, you provide folks a way in, and you also have the opportunity to get to know them and vet them. See whether they follow through. Do they show up? Do they do what they say they will do? Or do you have to chase them down? I've seen small organizations who want to invite folks onto the board immediately. First being on a board should be just one way to get involved in the organization, even if it's an all volunteer group. And you're really taking a huge risk if this is your first ask of folks. For one, it's a big ask. So one that like folks are likely to say, who don't know you well, to say no to. And you don't know the person very well either and don't know how they will or will not contribute to the work of the board. Find smaller ways for people to be involved. Invite non-board members onto board-sponsored committees or work groups. And realize that not everyone is going to make their way all the way up that engagement ladder. Some are perfectly happy to show up for a one-off event occasionally or respond to an action alert on occasionally. And this ladder of engagement can be for advocacy, but it can be for a lot of other things as well. I'm on a lot of mailing lists for organizations that I support, and I get a lot of donation requests from them. What I don't see as often is small ways for me to get involved, highlighted, or featured. Most organizations put a lot of time thinking about how to make it easy for me to give them money, but not as many organizations that I've seen have put the thought into making it easy for me to give them time in meaningful ways. And I feel like this is a big missed opportunity. Thank you for listening to this episode. I really appreciate the time you spend with me and my guests. You can find how to connect with Lisa, the full transcript of our conversation, as well as any links and resources mentioned during the show in the show notes at missionimpactpodcast.com slash show notes. I'd like to thank Isabel Strauss-Riggs for her support in editing and production, as well as April Coaster of 100 Ninjas for her production support. And until next time, Thank you for everything you do to contribute and make an impact.